Hi, it's Fraser here with a quick message before we start this week's Spiked Podcast. If you're a regular listener to our show and like what we have to say, then it would be fantastic if you could also become a Spiked supporter. Without the help of our listeners and readers, Spiked wouldn't be able to do what we do. Spiked supporters is our way of saying thank you. There's a whole host of perks you can enjoy as soon as you sign up. To find out more about becoming a Spiked supporter, just go to spiked-online.com forward slash supporters. That's spiked-online.com forward slash supporters. Hello and welcome to the Spiked podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and with me this week we have Spiked editor Tom Slater. Hello. And Spiked columnist Ella Whelan. Hi. Coming up on the show, we'll be discussing Kathleen Stock, Parliament's COVID report, the energy crisis and the women's safety phone line. So Kathleen Stock, a professor of philosophy and academic at the University of Sussex, has been the subject of a vicious denunciation campaign. She's been targeted for protests at her university. The police have told her that she shouldn't attend campus for her own safety and that she should install CCTV outside her own house. I mean, Tom, can you tell us a bit more about this story? I mean, this has been rumbling on for years now. Um, so Professor Stock at the University of Sussex, as you were saying, a philosophy professor, has been subject to this bubbling harassment, intimidation campaign because of her gender critical views and um, because of many of the new kind of heresies that we talk about a lot these days insofar as she believes that biological sex is immutable she mm. believes that there should be sex-based rights and she believes there should be women only spaces and for this she's been targeted by student activists and activists full stop calling for her to be sacked posters going up in her building on the university campus calling for her to be sacked you know threats online and off um, some of them pretty explicit. There was one doing the rounds this week where there, someone put up a picture of a gun saying that Professor Stock should rest her weary head. Really sinister stuff. And as you're saying, just in the past week, it's just bubbled up again, mm. this sort of toxic bile. So there were um, there was a group, I think, calling itself Anti-Turf Sussex, um, which again plastered all of these sorts of posters on campus, referring to her as a wretched transphobe, again calling for her to um, be sacked. Um, again, the kind of threat seemed to pile in. As you say, she got this advice from the police suggesting that she should fit these cameras, that she might need bodyguards. She's not returned to campus. Um, she was supposed to speak at the Battle of Ideas last weekend and didn't attend because mm. she'd obviously been advised not to make any appearances in public. And we just have to ask ourselves the question, how did we get in this position? Because it's not just Kathleen Stock as well, it's worth it's yeah. worth saying. I mean, there's been a number of gender critical feminists who have been subject to a level of liberalism and authoritarianism and shrillness, which has become incredibly intimidatory. You know, I, there's no kind of analogous situation that I can think of for jobbing academics. So, of course, there was Selena Todd, who we've spoken about before on the podcast, a history professor at Oxford, who was again told that she would need security to attend lectures back in 2019, I think I'm right saying, or maybe 2020. Um, there's Rosa Freeman at the University of Reading, human rights lawyer, um, who, again, because of her involvement in kind of gender critical causes, uh, had her office door defaced, covered in urine. And what's so important, I think, is that at this point, you're starting to see a kind of outpouring of solidarity, both for Stock and these women more broadly. But if only 
these institutions had stood up for these people earlier, if only um, people in positions of influence mm. had just said no to this tiny authoritarian, out of control ideological sect that you see making its presence felt, I really don't think we would be in the position that we're in now. I mean, these people, they don't represent students. They don't represent trans people. They only really represent themselves. But because of a heightened sense of sensitivity, because of this terror of being seen to be transphobic in quote marks, even though none of the women we're talking about, I think qualifies that, they have been indulged, I think it's fair to say. And the responses that we've seen in recent days, both from um, the UCU branch at Sussex as well as from the Labour Party and elsewhere, just show that, if anything, there are still many sections of the of the left, both on campus and off, who are continuing to indulge these people, even in the face of all of this. So yeah. there's a lot of questions to be asked about this, but how did we get here is an important one, I think. So, yeah, so let's dig into that that question more, you know, who who's enabling it or who's kind of encouraging it? Because the University of Sussex, to their credit, stood up for Kathleen Stock, said, you know, this is a a question of academic freedom and we won't tolerate these kinds of threats. But as you've said, Tom, you know, Kathleen Stock's branch of the UCU, the lecturers union, has essentially sided with those who say she's contributing to an unsafe space on campus for trans people. The Labour Party, the Labour Party's shadow minister for women, has in an extraordinary letter said, I'm not familiar with uh, Kathleen Stock's work, but she should be denounced for the following <laughs> reason. Association with the LGB so, alliance, I thought yeah. that, yeah. So Ella, I mean, is it is it do you think that is it the cowardice really? Is that the problem? The you know, people higher up just are unwilling to say anything or is it actually that they agree with the vilification campaigns? I think it's probably a bit of both, but that's a really important point that this it would be one thing if it was just a bunch of I mean, we went to Sussex, you know, there's always a bunch of kind of uh, harebrained lunatics who like to do this kind of stuff, who like to grandstand on the political stage and post a load of posters all over the place. That's not to play down the threats that Kathleen Stock has faced. But it'd be one thing if it was just a group of students. But the fact that UCU came in and made this extraordinary statement. I mean, really, a union that's meant to be in defence of um, academics and academic freedom come out and say, well, yeah, we don't really like harassment. But really, Adam Takel, the Vice-Chancellor, should have come out in defence of trans students and mm. where's your policy for trans students and blah, blah, blah. This, and it was, it was a, you know, denunciation, an underhanded denunciation of stock and a really cowardly move for a union that's supposed to be in defense of staff. I mean, some people have raised the question about, uh, the role of universities in general. I mean, Adam Takel made this great statement, but of course he's on his way out of the mm. university. And there are questions about whether other fellow vice chancellors would do the same in their positions or if they feel like they're going to risk, uh, getting the sack or coming into controversy if they stand up for people, particularly gender critical feminists. And then if you look at the Labour Party, I mean, the fantastic example this week, there was an article in The Guardian, which was a really good article detailing why this isn't just happening to Kathleen Stock. It's been happening for a very long time. And if you're only coming to the party now, you're late. And um, Jess Phillips, who is, you know, the, the bolshiest kind of, uh, you know, defender of women, someone who always goes on about women's rights in the Labour Party, retweeted this Guardian article in defence of stock and then removed her retweet and deleted it in an incredible show of cowardice, you know, presumably because some people got in touch and said, how dare you be transphobic? And the question is, is the real thing is, 
you know, this debate around trans can seem like a fringe issue. And we've said this many times on the podcast. It can seem like one side arguing for about, you know, biological determinism or about sexism and the other side saying we can be whoever we want to be and who cares? You know, a lot of the time we think, oh my God, there's more things interesting to talk about than gender. But the reason this really matters is because this issue makes cowards of us all. It mm. really, it really um, brings out people's unwillingness to defend um, free speech and particularly academic freedom. And there's also the question now, which is lots of people have been saying, oh, Stock is such an eminent philosopher. She's such a brilliant academic. How could you? And yes, her book, Material Girls, is you know very sensitive and really in-depth look at gender. But the question is, would you be, would we be defending the man on the street who says, well, actually, I think trans women aren't women or, you know, or any other person who isn't an eminent philosopher. Mm. There's a the tension here which says, OK, Lee, we need to come in and defend stock for this. Absolutely. But A, where have you been? And B, are you going to extend this defense of free speech and academic freedom further? I suppose you, you could say that the the way that stock is being made an example of is kind of sending a message because she is, you know, the most mild-mannered possibly of, of a lot of um, these gender-critical feminists. She really, you know, is so careful not to say the wrong thing. And yet, and yet, mm. she is still the target of this. Tom, what do you make of that? No, I think that's that's true. I mean, she's certainly very brave as far as she hasn't backed down on any of this stuff. But as mm. you say, has never said anything transphobic. makes a point of saying that trans people should have all the rights in the world and live with dignity and all the rest of it. It just comes down to those core issues, you know, where the claims or the you know, aspirations of certain trans activists clash with women's sex-based rights and all the rest of it. This is what, what I think is so striking about this is that it, this is fundamentally a kind of like internal left discussion, mm. if you like. That's really the, the the way in which this is being had out. And even though I completely take Ella's point about the fact that there could, there is a slight danger of um, say gender critical feminists just being the easy people to defend. What's striking is that for a lot of people, they're not easy to defend. Yeah. If you see what I mean, these people are have kind of impeccable left or liberal left credentials and basically every other issue there's an awful lot of people who actually will agree with them but they feel so gripped by terror that they mm. can't say that i mean as you say ella if it's, if this was like a kind of you know ukip supporting <laughs> academic yeah. a few years ago these people many people you know wouldn't have potentially reached the level of outrage that yeah. it has now of course we all know that and that is regrettable but there's something about this which is so striking because this should be an easier case to defend than it actually is. And it speaks to how much people are running scared of a, of a very unrepresentative and small and shrill group of activists that they feel the need to act in this way. And if we're talking about academic freedom, if we're genuinely suggesting, as we see in this case, that to believe in the reality of biological sex, regardless of what other conclusions you draw from that, but to think that that's important and that different rights and considerations flow from that is unsayable. Yeah on a university campus, where does that lead you? I mean, what the, you know, institutions, especially like Sussex would like to think of themselves as these kind of laboratories of new and radical and interesting ideas. You can't say that. Yeah. That's a real problem. And that's why, despite some of the potential sort of double standards inherent in this, that's why this case matters so much, I think, because if, if this is a line that people can't hold, then where are we going to be? In the, end? the spiked shop is open for business. You can get your favourite spiked slogan on a t-shirt, hoodie, mug or more. So why not treat yourself or treat a friend who has good taste to some epic spiked merchandise? Get ban nothing, question everything on a sweatshirt. Get cancel cancel culture on a laptop sleeve. Or get love Europe, hate the EU on a tote bag. 
Support Spiked and look great at the same time by visiting the Spiked shop. You can go to spikes-online.com and click the red shop button in the top right corner or you can get there directly by going to spikes-online.com forward slash shop. So MPs have produced a new report on the coronavirus. They've slammed the government's response, essentially saying that the failure to lock down fast enough has cost thousands of lives, especially in early March 2020. Tom, is is that a fair criticism given what we know now, or especially looking at it from the vantage point of mm. back then when we didn't know anything really? I mean, it, it does reflect the conventional wisdom at the mm. moment, um, by which I mean it's not necessarily... I don't mean it is the wisdom, but you know, this is what everyone is basically saying is that if only we'd have locked down earlier, we would have saved all of these lives. And the first thing is you do have to think back to the situation we were in back then and the things that we now know about um, specifically what the discussions were going on in government and with the scientific advisors and all the rest of it. Because if you take this report and the general chatter kind of as it is, you're essentially suggesting that the government should have introduced the most unprecedented authoritarian, never before seen in peacetime, and even to some extent more authoritarian than the um, sort of wartime measures we've had in this country before. They should have introduced all of that over a virus that we're still trying to work out how much it was going to affect this country, how Mm. much it had spread in this country, and that they should have done all of this um, against the scientific advice. Back in March, um, the scientific advice and SAGE were not recommending a lockdown. There was this change in position Mm. towards the end of March. And at the time, there was this narrative which grew up, which was effectively that um, Boris Johnson and Dominic Cummings were these kind of, uh, were again kind of just pursuing a kind of strategy completely against what the experts wanted. We know that's not true. They were following the science in capital T and capital S to the letter by that point. So it's a completely unreasonable and ridiculous thing to put that on them now. But the the other question is, is this really the only frame in which we're going to have this discussion two weeks here two weeks there. None of the considerations to the knock-on effects of lockdown, none of the considerations to the effect that it's had, not only on the healthcare system, the economy, the um, lives that are going to be lost and shortened as a result result of all of this. No consideration whatsoever to whether or not it was ever really legitimate in in the first instance to increase the power of the state over people's lives rather than trusting people and relying on voluntary action, which there was ample evidence that people were already doing before we even mm. moved into lockdown. If you look at all of the, um, you know, the records on people's movements and stuff in the run up to lockdown actually taking place. If all this debate is going to be about is two weeks here, two weeks there, we're really going to be in trouble. And what's interesting is that they almost compartmentalise, I think, other aspects of it. You know, the fact that we talk about the care homes issue in particular, which again, the government and the the former health secretary singled out for a lot of criticism in this report for essentially playing kind of COVID Russian roulette with care homes, you know, yeah. sending um, patients from uh, hospitals back out into the care sector, not testing them because the main priority was to keep as many beds clear as possible. But again, if you think if there wasn't this kind of myopic focus on lockdown, these issues would become clearer a lot earlier on, you felt like. So yes, I mean, it just feels like this. if this is going to be the terms of the debate mm. from here on for the future inquiry for all of this, then we are going to be in trouble because it's going to be so incredibly narrow and so incredibly blind to the obvious adverse consequences of all of this. Yeah, and it, it, it seems to see lockdown as the only possible solution to these problems as well. I mean, there, there doesn't seem to be much discussion of the fact that 
you know, the our NHS, for instance, is at capacity every winter. That's clearly a problem for, you know, our healthcare, the state of care homes more broadly, not just the mad decisions that were taken to, you know, dispatch elderly people into them. And you do wonder what that means for the for the future, because, you know, are, are we um, increasing the capacity of the NHS in a way that is is going to be resilient the next time something like this happens? Or are we thinking, let's get the lockdown in early next mm. time? I mean, this is it's an incredibly short-termist way of seeing things. And I think in many ways, this report is a total cop-out. Because you take, for example, the issue of care homes, which, um, okay, there's the immediate sort of technical issue of what what did you do in relation to making decisions between which people got back into care homes, how much you tested and all that kind of stuff. But an inquiry can't pick up the political fact of a broader look at what's had been going on, as you say, with the state of care homes, but also the way in which the government had been for many years previously talking about and treating elderly people. Mm. There's lots of people who live in care homes, but mainly elderly people. The fact that there has been a degradation of an older generation as talked about as, for example, bed blockers, meant that government ministers felt relatively confident. I mean, it, it was such a disaster that it was you'd have to feel relatively confident in not not going to be, you weren't going to get too much flack necessarily, or it wasn't going to matter as much if you bounce the bed blockers back into a care home. It wasn't, you know, the the concept of mass death in care homes, which we had, did not shock and horror them as much. Why is that? Because we've had a narrative of elderly people being dispensable for many years previously. And so an inquiry can talk about very technical things. And actually, I think it doesn't talk about the right technical things, but it cannot answer the political questions of why government ministers, why the Prime Minister acted in the way they did. This has been the fallacy, as we've said so many times on this podcast, the whole way through this pandemic, is that everyone talks about the science and whether or not you're following the science. But actually, there have been from start to finish political decisions that have been made that aren't based directly off of sage recommendations, but are based in a wider political narrative. And so you, you know, and talk about the future. We're now facing you know, an energy crisis, which we'll come on to talk about, in which, again, old people who can't heat their homes are going to die. And no one seems to care very much because we haven't learned the lesson from the pandemic about how necessary it is to look after an older generation. So it just, it feels like the government trying to cover its back, but also, as Tom says, the people who are criticising it for, you know, uh, you know, not focusing enough on lockdown or this or that completely misunderstand that we cannot have a technical tick box approach to the last 18 months. You have to really investigate, not through an investigation, but ourselves thinking about it as citizens, as political beings. What what laid the groundwork for this to be able to happen? What position were we in democratically that so many of us you know, to to put it bluntly, rolled over in the face of authoritarian restrictions. Why did we not catch this happening in care homes? All these questions are political with a capital B, not technical. Mm. Tom, what do you mean? No, no, I think the, the civil liberties point as well really needs to be stressed mm. because there's an incredible amount of complacency about this at the moment. Because, you know, in terms of our freedoms, our everyday freedoms, things are broadly speaking back to normal. But the fact that they've informally returned, I think, could mask the fact how thoroughly they've been kind of undermined in principle. Now, this debate can often get into a kind of thing of, oh, we're going to be locked down again next you know It's going to be more subtle than that. But you, I, I just think if you genuinely believe that you could introduce all of these unprecedented authoritarian measures, you know, bans on protest through to restrictions on your movements, not being able to leave the house without yeah. having one of a list of reasonable excuses, completely inverting the principles of freedom and all the rest of it. If you genuinely believe we can have 18 months of that and it will just come and go and not leave a trace, then 
I envy you, but yeah. it's it's so obvious that this is has legitimized a mode of governing potentially which could continue to haunt us. And I think the question you've always got to ask yourself is what what bar are we going to set this at? How big does the threat have to be? And also how much surely we can rely on ordinary people to do the right thing up until the point where maybe that succeeded. But th- just that debate has never really properly taken place. And even if people think on balance lockdown had to happen, or at least it had to happen at the height of the crisis, or maybe it had to happen in, over the winter or whatever, the way in which it was done was also completely terrifying. I mean, the government was ruling by decree mm. for much of the past year. You know, law was made and unmade at the strike of Matt Hancock's pen. And if you look at the winter plan as well, it, that those kind of reserved powers under the Public Health Act, which they specifically chose because it dodges parliamentary scrutiny and accountability. Yeah. There's other ways they could have done this, which would have provided more oversight and protections. That, again, is the legal basis on which they would bring in new measures if they had to. Mm. So we haven't learned the lesson of that ever. There's been no discussion about that whatsoever. It's been impossible for that even to be a factor. Um, if you would raise these things, it would be seen as a bit of a frippery. Yeah. Um or just a front because you just wanted to let it rip or whatever. So I think we just need to be really careful about that level of complacency, which seems to be snuck in just because, you know, the sun's shining and things are relatively back to normal. People are out and about. You can't still forget the past 18 months of that level of authoritarianism and you can't ignore the possibility that all of this has legitimised that in countries which prior to this like to think of themselves as free and democratic. Have you signed up to Spiked's daily newsletter yet? It's called Today on Spiked. Every day, you'll get a roundup of all of our content, plus some exclusive commentary on the big issue of the day, usually from myself or from our editor, Tom Slater. So to never miss a thing on Spiked, go to spiked-online.com forward slash newsletters and sign up to Today on Spiked. That's spiked-online.com forward slash newsletters. One of the aftershocks of the pandemic, and certainly the pandemic and the lockdowns have fed into this at the very least, is is the energy crisis. Um, Gas bills or wholesale gas prices have gone up by more than 400% in the past year. Factories in Britain are saying that energy is getting so expensive that they might have to close down this winter. You know, there's the danger of pensioners going cold. And yet, because presumably because we have COP26 coming up, the big climate jamboree, the government has decided to add more to our gas bills. It's essentially switching some of the green levies from our electricity bills onto our gas bills. Tom, this is madness, isn't it? Especially at this time. Well, it just shows, I mean, you put it in the piece this week, Fraser, it's the madness of the green agenda. And it's also, I think, the fact that even in the midst of a cost of living crisis, the sort of which that we're dealing with at the moment, that again, that overriding goal of decarbonisation still has to take priority over Mm. absolutely everything else. And this is the way in which the sort of green agenda becomes so kind of discombobulating to the way in which politics is usually done, because you're talking about an agenda which will make people's lives worse, which will make um, their daily lives more expensive. It will make things more difficult for them, whether, you know, from the question of how much their utility bills cost to even if everyone gets these heat pumps, they're just worse, you know, machines. They're they're going to make your house colder than it otherwise would have been. So these are the electric powered heat pumps Mm -hmm. that the government is encouraging people to take up because, you know, Presumably, in theory, we can create electricity without carbon, but mm-hmm. we can't have 
gas without carbon. And even the government's, you know, own technical advisors admit that a heat pump probably can't heat your house to room temperature without <laughs> all the right installation. I mean, it's crazy. Yeah. Mm. And, th- and this is the nature of it, is the fact that it's basically suggesting that a kind of abstraction, the planet, the environment, mm. takes priority of, over the well-being, prosperity of your own citizens. And that's not to suggest that any considerations about the climate or the environment or whatever are just therefore completely off the table. Of course not. But it just shows that in so much green politics and in green policy on a day-to-day level, it's just that your own citizens, the people who vote for you, the people whose welfare is supposed to be your primary concern, mm. are secondary. And yeah. I think what we're just really starting to see that bite and brought into sharp relief by all of these kind of external factors which have come to crash over this government the last couple of weeks. So Ella, the, the, some of the screen stuff might not be good news for ordinary people, but Prince Charles is very thrilled about <laughs> the path to net zero. He was talking about how he powers his Aston Martin with um, essentially whiskey. Was it whiskey and cheese? Wine, or, wine. It's Pinot Grigio and Camembert is the joke that Paddy Hannon made in his column this week on Spike. Uh, it's like something out of private. Aren't <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you can, if you can like our future heir to the throne, um, afford to retrofit or change your car to run on the byproducts of the estate that he lives in then fair enough but as <laughs> tom has pointed out many times in columns on spiked in relation to extinction rebellion like we know that there is a crossover between their aristocracy you know royalty mm. uh, and indeed lots of these sort of retired um, rich people who end up either on the M25 protesting about uh, insulating houses or out in some kind of street theatre in Trafalgar Square. There is a real you know, elitism to the green movement because it, you know, if you have never had to worry about your gas bill or if you have never had to worry about what you put in your car, not what your staff put in your car, but <laughs> what you put in your car and, and how you get to work and all those things, then it's kind, you're kind of living on a different, um, psychological plane. You mm. can't, you can't empathize with people who have to make decisions. And there's this really infantile idea that people are kind of whacking the heating up to 30 and think, open all the windows. Nobody cares about, you know, but using fuel or burning gas or, you know, ever, we're Two just, fingers to mother earth. Yeah. We're just, <laughs> we, these people are just wasteful. And what we need is a little bit of belt tightening to teach them the error of their ways and the consequences of their actions. That's absolutely not the case. And the, you know, it, it, the fact that you have Prince Charles uh, praising Greta Thunberg for her, you know, d- deeds in favour of the uh, environment shows the shallowness of so much of this and the fact that how out of touch it is. I mean, as Tom points out, there has been a real shift. And I think actually, interestingly, it's been a recent shift because not so long ago, such a high rise in gas prices would have been a real problem for the government. It, it's a direct reflection on on how people's quality of life is changing. Mm. It makes people very angry. And it would have been a real damning indictment on a, on a government um, that was, you know, not so recently, just after an election. But they really don't care that much anymore. And it shows how the narrative has changed because before you would, or at least you would have said, quality of people's lives is paramount. So like I was, it was cold the other night and I went to put on the heating and my partner was like, don't do that because it's really expensive put on a jumper. And you kind of think, but this is what they want. <laughs> this, is, this is what they want. They want me to put on three jumpers, mm. uh, you know, rather than turn the heating on in my flat, which is the most normal thing. And that deprioritizing of people's basic quality of life. We're not talking about luxury jets here. We're not yeah. talking, even, and even if we are, that would be fine. 
it's the most basic thing of heating your home. <laughs> is your house warm? It's, it's now becoming controversial. And that shows you that this green kind of eco dogma has just gone too far. But just on that point about the kind of alliance between the crusties and the aristocrats, if mm. you like, because I think there is something really in that because at its core, environmentalism it, it has this discomfort with modern society also with modern industrial society. Occasionally they say it very explicitly. Greta the other week, bless her, was talking about how, you know, Britain, if anything, has a bigger responsibility for the climate <laughs> crisis, so-called, because of the industrial revolution. And so you see even a calling into question, the industrial revolution, mm. which is basically the greatest thing that ever happened to yeah. humankind. You know, <laughs> you want to talk about living standards, you want to talk about prosperity, you want to talk about how long people live, the emergence of, you know, democratic society in the way that we understand it now, like all of this roots back to that in one way, shape or form. They don't like that because it's mucky, it's unpleasant, it's away from nature, it's away from the normal order of things. And obviously if you're an aristocrat, normal order of things is, uh, or at least the old order of things, we could say, probably sounds quite tempting yeah um so it's that is really what we're dealing with at the root of all of this like if you could find a solution that you could press a button tomorrow and we could continue with the lives that we currently lead if anything be more prosperous and freer and all the rest of it and it would have no impact on the climate whatsoever they would still feel uncomfortable about it <laughs> that is really where a lot of this comes we, from. we know that's the case because they reject uh, nuclear power exactly. so you know uh, and finally ella um Let's talk a bit about this proposed uh, helpline for women, a women's safety phone line. You can dial 888 or download the Walk Me Home, Walk Me Home app. app. Yeah. I mean, it's still a proposal, but it's something the government is really going for. Um, what do you make of it? Yeah, women's women everywhere relax because our future is in the hands of the chief executive of BT, who's <laughs> come up with this um, really dystopian actually uh, means of tracking women you know it's an optional app it's an optional phone line it's got the backing of Pretty Patel and the suggestion is that you would opt in in some way to have your um, records of where you're going or GPS or whatever sent to family or friends or a partner or a colleague that would then notify them if you got home or didn't notify them if you didn't get home at, during the window in which Google Maps says it's relevant for you, you you know if you haven't walked fast enough and I mean, none of these people seem to have either had a good time ever in their life or remember <laughs> what it's like to be particularly a young woman uh, where you would really not want most people know what, knowing what you're doing. Certainly you wouldn't want your parents knowing where you were going. You know, as I mentioned in my article for Spike this week, you know, so many of us have taken a different way home because we've got someone in tow that we don't want to bump into a neighbor with. The, the, I, so much of women's lives, uh, coming out of a, sexist way of life of chaperones and all of that from the past is to reject the idea of the need to be watched you know mm -hmm. that actually so many of uh, women of previous generations bemoaned the fact that while their brothers and uncles could go gallivanting about town however much long they wanted with whoever they wanted they would always have the you know dad tapping the watch when they got in or people asking questions about who they'd been with i thought we'd done with all of that and now on the back of a, you know, tragic murders of Sabina Nessa, of Sarah Everard, of Bieber and Nicole, you have this reemergence of really what is a sexist desire to clamp down on women's freedoms, you know, dressed up in the guise of safety. What the consequence of this will be in these apps, even I don't care about them not being mandatory. I don't care that it's optional. That's not the point. The point is, if you are saying particularly to young women that you need to have an app to track you, despite the fact that statistically we know that there are not millions of Wayne cousins out there waiting in the corners to grab us, then whether or not the threat is real, we walk around with fear 
And that is one of the biggest barriers to women's freedom at the moment, not terrible men, but fear. And these kind of apps re reify the idea for the need of fear. And that it's just, it's not just dystopian, but it's actually a rehabilitation of sexist ideas. But do you think there'll be any appetite for it? Or is this just the, the government and BT trying to be seen to be doing something or whatever? Well, it's like one of these things, lots of women have said, well, we've always done the three rings, which is true. Lots of women have, you know, like three rings on the Lang line and you know you're home or you've texted someone to say, I'm home safe. But mo- like, to be to be honest, most of us know that, okay, we do that sometimes. But as actually um, Joanna Williams pointed out at the Battle of Ideas Festival this weekend, how about all those millions of times that I got home and never told anyone I was home and got into bed tucked up safely and was fine. So there's a distortion of of the desire for this of because, you know, when you think of, if I think back of the times when I have been afraid or when I have maybe even followed or something like that, they stick in my mind because they're abnormal. Yeah. Because, but, you know, the whole of my life has not been coloured by that. And I used to, I don't anymore. When I was young, I used to go out a lot and I used to hang out with lots of unsavoury people. <laughs> but I don't, but that wasn't coloured by a fear. It was actually most of the time I didn't think about getting home. And lots of the time I didn't remember getting home. I mean, we, as women, we have to be honest that part of a healthy life means risk. Mm. And to sacrifice that risk on the basis of this sort of oppress- oppressive safety is no freedom at all. Thank you for listening to The Spike Podcast. We're back every Friday and you can now watch us on video too. Check us out on YouTube or go via the Spiked website, which is spiked-online.com. See you next time.